0: Have you ever wondered how many developers it takes to change a light bulb? None. Obviously, that's a hardware problem. Come on, people. I'm Michael Feenan, and you're listening to Real Time Overview. To everyone joining us for today's show, thanks for lending us your beautiful ears. As a reminder, episode 6 of the Drunken UX podcast was released on Monday. Aaron and I wrapped up part 2 of our discussion of higher ed websites, so be sure to check that out and share your thoughts and experiences with us. We'll be back in a couple weeks with episode 7, where we'll be discussing how to get into web development professionally and how to keep your skills sharp. Starting today, though, we head over to Prototyper. You build websites long enough, you're bound to build a form, or a million. Momosilm has put out a guide to creating user-friendly forms at Prototyper's blog that covers a number of usability considerations that can make the process better for your users. We create forms with the intent of users submitting them, so that we can take some kind of action, whether that's being able to email them updates, create an account for the user, or make a sale. So ensuring your forms are inviting and easy to use is a critical step in usability. Making a form is relatively easy, I can teach you the HTML markup in about 10 minutes. But that also means that it's relatively easy to make a bad form. This article covers many of those basics, such as what the parts of a form are, but then builds into more complex topics like field states, label behavior, call to action placement, and other important parts of the experience. Forums are, after all, one of the most common systems of interaction users are faced with across the web, so it's important as a web professional to constantly work on making that experience as smooth and relatable as possible. Okay, here's a story of a different color. Head over to UX Matters and you can check out a chapter from Luke Hayes' book, Researching UX Analytics. This is a longer read than we've presented before but it's also a full chapter of information that can help you improve on methods you use to make your websites better. In the chapter, Measuring and Reporting Outcomes, Hay tackles topics like how to perform and measure A-B tests, which sort of tests are right for different scenarios, how to target time and plan your test, and so much more. Did I mention that this was a full chapter from a book and not just an article? By the time you're done, you'll have a lot more to think about the next time you're ready to test a change on your site. If you're interested in the full book, stop by the show notes at drunkenux.com, and we'll have a link there for you to pick it up. When I started Drunken UX several years ago, I had a particular idea in mind that would have been a video series featuring usability tests while drunk. Needless to say, that's not what Drunken UX turned out to be. And while I retain the name, I realize that the UX piece might be a little confusing. In this case, the UX in Drunken UX doesn't just refer to user experience in the academic web sense. We mean it as a reflection of our user's experience with us, the hosts, as we drink and talk about the web. I told this story to lead into Kagler erezs article where he writes that we have lost track of what UX actually means. Kegler starts with a brief history that begins with a reference to Don Norman, whose books I absolutely recommend to anyone interested in how we as people interact with things. And I mean that to say anything, not just websites. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to Norman's work in case you want to look it up too. I like this article because I've spent a lot of time thinking about how our industry uses semantics to create value. Value in job titles, value in marketing, and value in products. We use names and labels to try and differentiate our expertise and stand out. In its broadness, UX can often mean everything and nothing because of that. As a result, this article takes a hard look at what really constitutes user experience at a foundational level and attempts to create a common language we can use to reference it, and I really like that. If you catch one thing from today's episode, make it this article. It'll be about 8 minutes well spent. Do you know what imposter syndrome is? Wikipedia defines it as a concept describing individuals who are marked by an inability to internalize their accomplishments and have a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. Which is to say, many web professionals look around at their peers' success and measure themselves as lesser by comparison even though they have plenty of their own skills to be proud of and celebrate. Nikita Sobolev's article, I Am a Mediocre Developer, is a look into how we process this feeling and deal with it. The opening section might even be the one that cuts the deepest, where she writes that she Googles the simplest things all the time. I think that's why an article like this is important to share. She Googles solutions. So do I. So do you, your friends, and your coworkers. That's okay, and sometimes we need to be reminded of it. When you work as a web professional, it's inevitable that you'll end up doing some amount of work that doesn't play entirely to your strength. Hey, I'm a crappy designer. I have no problem admitting that. Sometimes, though, i got to get something on the page. What matters is making sure you have the tools in your toolbox to help yourself. Sobolev addresses many of the concerns people have when they doubt their skill set and gives some advice on how to get through those moments of insecurity. If you're getting into web programming and are trying to decide where to focus your skills, head over to Stack Overflow's developer survey results that were just released. The annual survey takes a deep dive into a number of questions that face developers, turning out information on the most used languages, the most interesting languages, what to avoid, where the developers are from, and much more. For instance, I learned that I'm in the rarefied group of less than 10% of people who have been coding for over 20 years and now I feel old. Great. Beyond this though, the survey gives insight into how people learn to code, ways they teach themselves new skills and other soft topics that can be really valuable if you're still finding your footing in the industry. Referring back to Nikita's article on imposter syndrome, there's even a section here that looks at that and you'll be happy to hear that the longer you work in the field, the less likely you are to second-guess yourself there's way too much information in this survey to go into here. So if you're interested in knowing more about the ecosystem and the developers that inhabit it, go scroll through some of the questions and their answers. We end today with one for the JavaScript and Node developers out there. Paul Shan has put together a list of 17 coding tips to make applications faster at Void Canvas. This is one of those great review articles where you might know some of the suggestions but with this large list you're bound to come away with at least a couple ideas to either improve your code or maybe get something that you can pass on to others. He gives examples of memory leaks, looping, promises, file hosting, and a whole lot more. So like I said, anyone should be able to find something useful here if you're in the trenches with JavaScript. I hope we gave you at least one article to tickle your fancy today. If so, head over to DrunkenUX.com and check out the links in the show notes, as well as the links to some of the book material we mentioned earlier. As always, if you have thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions, you can get them to us through our website or DrunkenUX on Facebook and Twitter. Alternatively, you can reach me directly on Twitter. I'm just at Fienen. For real-time overview, I'm still Michael Fienen, and I look forward to serving you up with some helpful web dev stories next week. Until then, keep your personas close and your users closer.